Welcome to Clabberty, hosted by me, Larry McCannum. Here we are again. It's good to see you all. I hope you had a wonderful week. As per usual, a lot of terrible things have happened between now and then, but there is some silver lining. Greta Gerwig became the fifth woman ever nominated for Best Director, in this case for the movie Lady Bird, which was heartily recommended by my first guest, Miranda Sajak. I hope you all support her and check out that movie. On top of that, Mudbound's Rachel Morrison made history as the first female cinematographer to become an Oscar nominee. That's fantastic. We're really making some progress. And we collectively need to make sure that this isn't just a temporary band-aid and that we're seeing actual change take place. Diversity and representation aren't things that you can just do casually. We all gotta work hard and maintain the progress that we're making. From Variety, Dee Reese, the director of Mudbound, has said, I'm glad that people are recognizing the craft of it and not making decisions based on tokenism. Rachel's work is on the screen. Go to Sandy Sissel, Go to Ellen Curris, go to Rachel Morrison. Women have been making interesting images for a long time. And in my own words, it's about time that they were recognized for it. In other news, this is a story I have a bit of trouble relating to. My engineer Will is into this Dungeons and Dragons thing. I can't wrap my head around it. Maybe it's age or being told as a child that playing D&D meant you were going to hell. The game of Dungeons and Dragons is played with one person running the game. They're called the DM or Dungeon Master. The other players create characters that they try to bring to life through role-playing or the choices they make. This is a pastime populated primarily by white men, but there's no reason for it to be limited to that demographic. Mike Merles, the lead designer of D&D, took to Twitter to voice his opinion on an important issue. And I quote, Funny how many of the same fans, in quotations, who insist on gatekeeping via rules complexity and lore density also have a problem with women in tabletop gaming. Hey guys, you're all fired from D&D. Find another game. This, of course, led to an outburst and a lot of confusion. On my behalf, I don't even understand what he's talking about gatekeeping and rules complexity or lore density. I had to have a long talk with Will, and it basically breaks down to this. There's apparently a lot of men who feel threatened when a woman joins the table. Maybe they think they're just doing it because it's a trend, nerdy is cool. I'm not even going to pretend to understand the mentality. What Merles means by gatekeeping is that these same individuals who don't want women at the tables will challenge them to questions about this character's backstory, how it relates to the world, all these complicated stories and plot threads that not even all the other male players at the table might be aware of. Basically testing to see if the woman is a true nerd, if she actually belongs in the group. To me, that's completely ridiculous. There are no qualifications to participate in any game like that. If you have the right attitude and are willing to invest your time, anyone should be welcome, period. This recent discussion came up because the company that owns D&D, Wizards of the Coast, they just hired a new game designer, Kate Welch, which immediately caused an uproar. She may have been involved with gaming for a long time, but she does not have the long history with D&D that a lot of these dedicated players do. That's not necessarily a bad thing. We need to open up these communities to new influences 
And bringing in different perspectives is a key part of that. I wish Kate Welch the best, and I appreciate Mike Merle speaking out on her behalf. Part of the reason I bring this D&D story up is I was reading through the comment section, and I'll be honest, I wasn't surprised at how toxic it was. Logical fallacies were flying right and left. The way people were behaving was inexcusable. One word that came up that I had to look up is thought. T-H-O-T. Apparently, this is some kind of common alt-right, men's right activist slang to demean women. It stands for Thirsty Ho Over There. Actually, it comes from the Chicago music scene. Maybe Chief Keef? That means nothing to me, but I'll take your word for it. One of the users laid into another guy, accusing him of defending a female commentator who he identified as a thought. There's all this lingo that I can barely follow. He kept saying he was white knighting and hoping to have his member touched by this, by this young lady. Now look, I don't think you should use language to intentionally demean or exclude others, but at least be a little more creative about it. That hoe over there, that, that's really your biting insult? This is the cream of the crop of you angry men? That's downright embarrassing. How about you do some self-reflection? Or if, like most animals, you don't recognize yourself in a mirror, parrot someone who is much more clever. Welcome to a new segment. This one's called Ask Larry. I realized that you don't know a lot about me. I haven't shared all that many details. I'm not going to divulge everything about myself, but I thought it would only be fair if I ask all these other people intimate questions that you, the listeners, have the chance to do the same as well. From Will S. in Eagle Rock, California, I got the question, where did you get that accent? I think it's pretty obvious, the greatest city on earth, New York City. I may not sound like everyone else there, but I can assure you I'm no coffee-drinking hipster. You'll never catch me on a bike riding through Williamsburg. I also don't have a ridiculous mustache. To be totally frank, I'm living in Los Angeles now, And it's not out of the realm of possibility that I exaggerate the accent a little bit. A taste of home. First of all, Will, I want to thank you. Oh, thanks, Larry. Not you. The better Will. The one from Eagle Rock. Whatever. I appreciate your question. And to do you one better, I'm going to break a rule I haven't even established yet and answer two of your questions. The second question Will asks from Eagle Rock asks, When did you get into radio? I know it's hard to believe, but this is a new thing for me. I have absolutely no experience in radio whatsoever. I did not really understand what a podcast was until we were in the middle of recording our first episode. I should have done a little preparation, but I got excited. There was so much I wanted to share with all of you. That said, my background's in entertainment. I worked as an agent and a manager for many, many years. I'm more of a behind-the-scenes guy. This is my opportunity to shine. Thank you again for your question. On to the next one. KGA from Brooklyn asks, Do you feel compassion or empathy towards women as people? How have you crossed the line with women in the past, and why do you care? Now that's a foundational question, and I think it ties into the purpose of this podcast. I've made many mistakes. Not as terrible and criminal as some of the individuals I mentioned by name on this podcast. It's more guilt by association and participation. It took me a long time to recognize How even if I'm not directly doing anything harmful to women, I may be part of a system that is. It's caused a lot of self-reflection and really made me question many aspects of my life. In terms of the specifics of your question, I feel empathy towards all people. Women are no exception. As far as tourists who stop in the middle of the sidewalk, 
And people who have loud conversations on the phone while on public transportation, not so much. I'm not recommending death as a penalty, but something death adjacent. I think in this day and age, we need to prioritize empathy. In many ways, I see it like the Black Lives Matter movement. It's not that other lives don't matter, but in this moment, we really need to prioritize how police are treating African Americans and how our society is treating women as a whole. As far as the part of your question where you ask how I've crossed the line with women in the past, I'm making this podcast as an attempt to make amends. I let down someone important to me, someone who wishes to remain anonymous. Down the line, I hope to elaborate, but all I can say now is I was at fault and I really let it down. Another question comes from Byron L., also in Brooklyn. How have your politics changed over the years, and what have been the biggest impetuses of change? Now, Byron, who were you calling impotent? I'm just kidding. My grasp of the English language is like an aggressive handshake. Very firm, but a little sweaty. For me personally, I've always been left-leaning. Maybe I had a bit of a conservative upbringing, but the more I saw of the world, and the more I interacted with very different kinds of people, the harder and harder it became for me to write off one group as always behaving in the stereotypical way. I could always find an exception. I think New York City is a fantastic place for that. You're more or less forced to interact with people. They're part of your daily life, unavoidable, especially on public transportation. You see countless cultures, you hear different languages, and you learn to respect and appreciate foreign cuisine. So I think that all naturally sent me on a path to become increasingly liberal and progressive. Vietnam was another turning point. I was too young to serve, but that was a transformational period in American history. Up until that point, war was this glorious thing that all men should aspire to participate in. But seeing that reality broadcast on the news, the death and destruction, made that romanticism impossible. We started asking, why are we there? Why are we sacrificing the youth of our nation for a war that we don't even fully understand? We're not just going to go die because you tell us to. But I think what truly set me on this path is Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan ushered in this era of CEOs making ridiculous amounts of money. The rich get richer. Oh, and they'll be so generous, they'll help the poor. What a crock. You know what trickles down? The sweat on my balls. You're welcome to that. The rich are only interested in helping themselves and getting tax write-offs. So I think gradually, my tolerance of capitalism has been waning and eroding. The mortgage crisis, Wall Street, essentially there seem to be no rules. If you're making money, shareholders are happy. They'll let you sweep whatever else under the rug. Misogyny, racial discrimination, unequal pay, manipulation of work hours, unfair severance, the list goes on and on. I think the Weinstein allegations really brought home to me how connected everyone in the industry was to this abuse. I've worked with women in entertainment for many, many years, and I never appreciated how vulnerable they truly are. The casting couch is almost a casual joke. It's like how we treat prison rape. And I'm not totally innocent myself. I may have made unsavory jokes in the past, but I never abused my position of power willingly. Again, I think this is a learning opportunity for all of us. It's very easy to see the world only through your perspective. We'd all grow a lot faster if we could try to understand someone else's experiences. And that's truly the heart of my desire behind this podcast. You should always be able to have a conversation no matter how different you are and no matter how much you disagree.
we're going to do something a little differently this week. There's no interview section. Instead, I'm going to devote that time to expanding upon a news story. Articles rarely have the opportunity to provide enough nuance, so we're going to take a very critical look at the allegations that Aziz Ansari is facing. The article in question was published by Babe.net. The author is Katie Way, but it recounts the experience of a young woman who had a date with Aziz Ansari. The title of the article is, I went on a date with Aziz Ansari. It turned into the worst night of my life. The article lays the context of the introduction at a 2017 Emmy Awards party. The woman in question, who is going under the pseudonym of Grace to remain anonymous, was attending the party with another gentleman. She's a fan of Aziz, or was a fan, encountered him, they had some small talk, he seemed a little reluctant, but they bonded over the camera she brought. It was an old model from the 80s. Upon returning to New York, they eventually scheduled the time that they could go out on a date. Grace met Aziz at his apartment. They had a glass of wine, and already the article's talking about how he didn't let her choose the type. She prefers red wine, he only offered her white. That seems like a strange detail, but sure, why not? They then left to have dinner at a nearby oyster bar, where they talked about this and that, with Grace saying that she led the conversation. When time came for the check, Grace says that she felt like Aziz couldn't wait to leave. She didn't even have the opportunity to finish a glass of wine. I'm assuming she ordered red wine. A little harried, they leave together and walk back to his apartment. Upon entering the apartment, Grace complimented Aziz on his marble countertops. He then said something along the lines of, How about you hop up and take a seat? He then proceeded to kiss her, which quickly escalated into fondling. He then undressed her, followed by himself. I apologize for the graphic nature of some of these descriptions, but I think they're important details for the story. At this point in the article, Grace mentions that she felt very uncomfortable about how quickly things were moving. Aziz then mentioned that he was going to go grab a condom, and Grace responded with something along the lines of, let's relax for a sec, let's chill. He continued to kiss her, performed oral sex on her, and then requests that she return the favor, which she did. She elaborates that this initial encounter was brief, only about 10 minutes. I'm guessing that she thought that after the oral sex, their sexual encounter would be over. From the male perspective, detailing the duration of time could be perceived as shaming. Grace then gives some specifics on the encounter, saying, The move he kept doing was taking his two fingers in a V-shape and putting them in my mouth, in my throat, to wet his fingers, because the moment he'd stick his fingers in my throat, he'd go straight for my vagina and try to think of me. She dubbed this move the claw. She then alleges that he repeatedly moved her hand to his own genitals, by her estimation five to seven times over the course of the night, not recognizing that she was a bit reluctant and she would repeatedly move her hand away. Following the sexual acts on the countertop, Grace mentions how she kept trying to get up and move away from Aziz, but he maintained close proximity and would move with her. He wasn't holding her down, but he also wasn't giving her any space. She says that she had used verbal and nonverbal cues to indicate how uncomfortable the situation was becoming for her. In her own words, she would pull away and mumble or stop moving her hands or lips. She's not sure if he noticed or ignored these nonverbal cues. Aziz apparently kept requesting to have sex, and eventually she responded with, next time, to which she asked if she meant another date, and then joked that if he pours her another glass of wine, does that count? 
He proceeded to pour her another glass of wine, and she excused herself to the bathroom. Upon returning, Grace voiced a much clearer message. She said, I don't want to feel forced because then I'll hate you, and I'd rather not hate you. Aziz's alleged response was, Oh, of course, it's only fun if we're both having fun. He then invited her over to the couch. Grace perceived this as meaning that the sexual encounter was over. But I'd like to point out both of them were still naked. Now, I want to be transparent here. Being naked does not entitle anyone to anything, but it does send an unclear message. Aziz sat down on the couch, and she sat down on the floor next to him. She was then surprised when he turned her around and then indicated for her to perform oral sex on him again, which she did. They then made out again, followed by him saying, doesn't look like you hate me. Afterwards, Aziz mentioned that he had something he wanted to show her and led her to a large mirror. He then allegedly said, where do you want me to fuck you? Do you want me to fuck you right here? While ramming his penis against her buttocks. Not penetrating, but just pantomiming the act of intercourse. Grace said no and expressed the desire not to have intercourse. Aziz then invited her to chill with their clothes on. They started watching some TV, and Aziz began to kiss her again and perform this claw maneuver while trying to undo her pants. She turned away and said, You guys are all the fucking same. And when she turned to him, he forcibly kissed her. Grace moved away, saying that she would call a car. He allegedly kissed her forcibly again and hugged her, then insisted on calling her a car service. Upon leaving his apartment, Grace says she burst into tears and continued to cry during her ride home, saying that she felt violated. The article then takes time to elaborate on how tied to feminism Aziz is, whether it's the characters he portrays in fiction or his stand-up routine. Both tend to be sympathetic and considerate of women. He's also self-identified himself as a feminist. This led to Grace feeling a disconnect between the version of Aziz that she was familiar with through media and the Aziz she experienced on the state. Aziz has even written a book called Modern Romance, detailing the realities of dating in a world of technology and social media. She characterized his sexual performance as that of a horny, rough, entitled 18-year-old. I believe Grace was 22 or 23 at the time, and Aziz was 34. The following day, Aziz texted her, It was fun meeting you last night. And Grace responded with, Last night might have been fun for you, but it wasn't for me. You ignored clear nonverbal cues. You kept going with advances. I want to make sure you're aware so maybe the next girl doesn't have to cry on the ride home. Aziz responded with, I'm so sad to hear this. Clearly, I misread things in the moment, and I'm truly sorry. I believe that's the last direct communication the two had between each other. This is Aziz Ansari's response. In September of last year, I met a woman at a party. We exchanged numbers, we texted back and forth, and eventually went on a date. We went out to dinner, and afterwards we ended up engaging in sexual activity, which by all indications was completely consensual. The next day, I got a text from her saying that, although it may have seemed okay, upon further reflection, she felt uncomfortable. It was true that everything did seem okay to me, so when I heard that it was not the case for her, I was surprised and concerned. I took her words to heart and responded privately after taking the time to process what she had said. I continue to support the movement that is happening in our culture. It is necessary and long overdue. I'm going to preface a lot of this by saying I'm trying to present this story as accurately and fairly as possible. And I'll try to make it extremely clear when I'm weighing in with my own opinion as opposed to trying to lay out the facts. I'm also not a lawyer, so if I get any of the legal aspects incorrect, please let me know. And if anything I'm saying makes you uncomfortable, 
I would love to hear your thoughts and understand why that's so. Grace is accused of these of sexual assault, and I think that's important. I did a bit of investigating, and in New York State at least, sexual assault is not a criminal charge. It's an umbrella term that covers specific offenses like sexual misconduct, forcible touching, sexual abuse, aggravated sexual abuse, rape, criminal sexual act, facilitated sex offense with a controlled substance, and predatory sexual assault. Again, the theme of this whole podcast is that clarity is important. If you're accusing someone of a crime, I think you need to be more specific. I'm not saying you need to give the actual statute, but at least in terms of the New York legal system, sexual assault is entirely too vague. A common definition of sexual assault seems to be when a person touches another person in a sexual manner without their consent or coerces, verbally or physically, a person to engage in a sexual act against their will. And I do think that applies. I'm not trying to defend disease or his actions. I think they were inappropriate and he definitely misread the scene. That said, I have to agree with Barry Weiss, a New York Times writer. I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. I apologize if I got it wrong. She wrote, I'm apparently the victim of sexual assault, and if you're a sexually active woman in the 21st century, chances are that you are too. That was her reaction to this article. And I was initially going to respond, but she did it for me by tweeting, It sounds like a terrible night, and I'm sorry she experienced it. The idea, though, that this is assault is quite terrifying. If this is assault, then I don't know a person, man or woman, that isn't a survivor. I wholeheartedly agree with that. But that also doesn't make it untrue. I think our society has a lot of issues. And one thing Miranda Sajak brought up is that we don't really have the language to discuss these things honestly and accurately. While I think Babe and Grace would have benefited from being more specific about the charges, I do agree that a form of sexual assault took place. A criminal form, no. But it was definitely an inappropriate situation. The next thing I want to discuss is should you be able to make an accusation like this anonymously? Aziz is obviously a public figure, but if you're not charging him with a crime, you're not using the legal system, should you have the right to shame a public figure while protecting your own identity? The article was entirely from Grace's perspective. If there's no oversight, how can we know what is true or not in the court of public opinion? Details are important, and I think within the context of career-ending allegations, we need more information. I'm not saying you have to reveal yourself, because that opens a whole can of worms, but I think it's something we need to discuss. I want to protect victims 100% of the time, but there also needs to be some kind of checks and balances. One reason I brought up the situation, it's the first case I'm aware of in respect to the Hollywood scandals that involves a man of color being accused by a white woman. We've discussed intersectionality and privilege, and I think those both play a role in this discussion. I don't feel like I'm qualified to get into the nuance of that. So if any of you listeners know of any experts on that subject, I would love to sit down and talk to them. I think there's a lot of details I'm just not going to be aware of as a white man. I do also think that we need to consider how old both the writer and Grace were at the time. That doesn't excuse mistreating anyone by any means. But I think the title of the article... I went on a date with Aziz Ansari, and it was the worst night of my life. That, to me, sounds like the tendency for all those moments in your formative years to be so impactful. They have so much emotional meaning to you. And that doesn't make them invalid or that we should ignore them. But I think the hyperbole of the worst night of my life 
isn't doing any favors in this situation. I think it diminishes how seriously some people might take this story. I'm not excusing that or justifying it. I'm just pointing out from my perspective that's something I've considered. I think we also need to look at motive. This article came out right after Aziz Ansari's appearance at the Golden Globes. And it also comes in the context of a firestorm of comedians, actors, entertainers, agents, all having their careers totally ended. When you release a story like that in this context and allege that the individual committed sexual assault, I think it's fair to assume that they're looking for a similar outcome. They want Aziz and his shows to be canceled. They want his career over. Grace herself posted on her former Twitter account in October of 2017. Does your regressor know he's your regressor? Hashtag me too. Let's ask mine. At Aziz Ansari. Wanna ask yours? Blast him. Someone else responded in the comments section saying, He's cancelled. So sorry this happened to you. Grace responds with, Cancelled. All in caps. I understand that seeing someone wear a, a symbol of solidarity with women that makes you feel like they're a hypocrite might inspire you to seek some kind of vengeance. But I think we need to take these allegations very seriously. If Aziz Ansari sexually assaulted you, please press criminal charges. I know it's a difficult and challenging process, but if you can't trust the legal system, that's something we need to address. And as I keep mentioning, stories like this seem to create a divide. You have the people aggressively supporting Aziz, and on the other hand, people who want his career done. We don't have to see these issues as either or. I fully endorse saying that Aziz behaved inappropriately. My read of it is Aziz might have watched too much porn. By the description that Grace gave, he seemed aggressive and had some sexual tendencies that seemed to be rooted in perhaps some problematic mentalities. He wasn't as selfish as I hear most men are, but the whole encounter seemed to be much more about him. Part of the reason that I bring up both Katie Way and Grace's age is an altercation that Katie Way had with Ashley Banfield. Ashley Banfield is a journalist who was a host for CNN and HLN. She was an outspoken voice during the Iraq War, criticizing media coverage. When she came across the story from Babe, she railed against it. She began addressing Grace, the woman who participated in the date with Aziz. Dear Grace, I'm sorry you had a bad date. I've had a few myself. They stink. She then acknowledged, it's hard being a victim, but in her words, let's take a moment to reflect on what you claim was the worst night of your life. You had a bad date. Your date got overly amorous. After protesting his moves, you did not get up and leave. You continued to engage in the sexual encounter. By your own clear description, this wasn't a rape, nor was it a sexual assault. At best, it was unpleasant. She continues, So what exactly is your beef? That you had a bad date with Aziz Ansari? Is that what victimized you to the point of seeking a public conviction and a career-ending sentence against him? Is that truly what you thought he deserved for your night out? Again, she says, and it stinks, but if you just had an unpleasant sexual experience, you should have gone home. But what you have done, in my opinion, is appalling. You have chiseled away at a movement, along with all my sisters in the workplace, have been dreaming of for decades. A movement that has finally changed an oversexed professional environment that I, too, have struggled through at times over the last 30 years. You had an unpleasant date, and you didn't leave. That is on you. 
and all the gains that have been achieved on your behalf and mine are now being compromised by allegations that are reckless and hollow. Banfield ended her piece by saying, The only punishment Aziz Ansari deserves is a bad case of blue balls, not a Hollywood black ball. Now, I, I think she worded that a little strongly and should not have put the onus of collapsing a movement on Katie Way or Grace. I don't think that's entirely fair. But then I'm going to read you the email response that Katie Way sent. This is the email in full. It's an unequivocal no from me. The way your colleague, Ashley, someone I'm certain no one under the age of 45 has ever heard of, by the way, ripped into my source directly was one of the lowest, most despicable things I've ever seen in my entire life. Shame on her. Shame on HLN. Ashley could have talked to me. She could have talked to my editor or my publication. But instead, she targeted a 23-year-old woman in one of the most vulnerable moments of her life. Someone she never fucking met before for a little attention. I hope the ratings were worth it. I hope the 500 retweets on the single news write-up made that burgundy lipstick, bad highlight, second-wave feminist has-been feel really relevant for a little while. She disgusts me, and I hope when she has more distance from the moment, she has enough of a conscience left to feel remotely ashamed. Doubt it, but still. Must be nice to piggyback off of the fact that another woman was brave enough to speak up to the societal conversation about sexual assault. Grace wouldn't know how that feels because she struck out into this alone because she's the bravest person I've ever met. I would never go on your network. I would never even watch your network. No woman my age would ever watch your network. I will remember this for the rest of my career. I'm 22 and so far not too shabby and I will laugh the day you fold. If you could let Ashley know I said this and that she's no holds barred the reason, it'd be a real treat for me. Thanks, Katie. Ashley Banfield responded to Katie Way's email by sharing it on the air and addressing it as follows. Because if you truly believe in the hashtag MeToo movement, if you truly believe in women's rights, if you truly believe in feminism, the last thing you should do is attack someone in an ad hominem way for her age. I'm 50, and for my highlights. I totally agree with Ashley Banfield. That email was unprofessional and did not address Banfield's criticisms. Another piece by The Atlantic addresses some of these topics. The article is titled, Babe Turns a Movement into a Racket. It details how the website of Babe, which is operated by a group of very young women in Brooklyn, got word of Grace's story. They rushed the piece into publication, and Ansari was given less than six hours to respond to these reputation-destroying allegations. This is one of the sources that illustrates how Katie Way is disingenuous for criticizing Ashley Banfield for just trying to generate traffic. The Atlantic says that Babe is created by and for, quotation marks, girls who don't give a fuck. I think everyone should have a voice. But the problem is this article points out Babe is not consistent. They post manipulative articles like period trapping is the only way to find out if you're in a relationship or not. You should be secretly looking through your partner's phone. We pranked our exes and asked them to be our New Year's kiss, and it was a complete disaster. You're not paranoid. This is how to tell if someone else is closing in on your man. And again, being inconsistent concerning things like shaming women and tearing them down. One article is called, Amber Rose's plastic surgery is absolutely a feminist statement. Followed by, sorry, but Kendall Jenner can't model for shit. Now, I think those messages might be conflicting and troubling, but they're not truly a problem. What I do have a problem with is Babe 
runs a lot of rape fantasies. And I think that's something we need to address and might be a symptom of a culture as a whole. But again, it feels inconsistent. One of the articles is called, A Clinical Psychologist Revealed Why Women Have Rape Fantasies and It's Totally Fascinating. Followed by, These Women Revealed Why They're Into Rape Fantasies. And another one called, There's a Major Rape Fantasy Subculture Out There and It's Pretty Intense. Or, A Sexologist Explains Why Women Have Rape Fantasies. And finally, Sex IRL, The Grad Student with Graphic Rape Fantasies. This is something we should all be discussing, but I think it's a challenge for you to present your view is the only true feminist view, as Katie Way did, when your website has very questionable material. Will clued me in on something, too. He identified these as clickbait headlines. And after explaining to me what that was, I totally agree. Even the title of the original article, I went on a date with Aziz Ansari, and it was the worst night of my life. That's a clickbait title. Same with all of these rape fantasy articles. They want to generate traffic, and they know what buttons to push to draw them. The Atlantic article I'm referring to, Babe Turns a Movement into a Racket by Caitlin Flanagan, has some pretty damning sections. Towards the end of her article, she writes, But the piece is the almost inevitable consequence of a lifestyle promoted on the website, which enjoins young women to fulfill men's sexual desires and to literally behave whorishly. Or as a wrap-up of Babe's 2017 service journalism put it, you now know how to give life-changing blowjobs, what it's like to have rape fantasies, what percent hoe you are based on a scientifically accurate quiz, and how to keep your lipstick on even if your mouth is otherwise occupied. She continues, pulsing underneath all this is the exact emotion which Katie Way lost control of Wednesday night. Rage. So overpowering and so poorly understood that it can easily erupt and excoriate the wrong person. In such swirls of high emotion and with diffuse goals, social entrepreneurship becomes lucrative. This Ansari episode, for example, has been a huge boon to the girls who don't give a fuck. I've covered a lot of elements of the story, but again I want to reiterate, we can't use this to jump to conclusions like people in the comment section would love to. Even if Grace's story was totally fabricated, she made up every single detail that does not invalidate other victims. One counterexample does not erase everything else. What I'm seeing over and over is that whenever there's any inconsistency, people use that as a reason to write off everything else. That's unacceptable. I just think if you want people to perceive and value what you're presenting, you gotta minimize anything that can be a distraction. I mean, just look at the comment sections on these. You have two polar opposite sides fighting tooth and nail. They're waiting for details they can pounce on. Don't make that easier for them. I'm having difficulty articulating this without coming across like I'm victim blaming, and that's truly something I want to avoid. By Grace's account, I think it would have been beneficial to avoid nonverbal cues, especially when you're just starting to get to know someone. Not to excuse any of Aziz's behavior, but he was extremely clear that he wanted to have sex. And while Grace ended up being clear that she did not want to have intercourse, and that has to be respected, I think she should have left the second time Aziz requested sex. By her own account, he was not respecting her attempts to de-escalate the physicality of their encounter. I'm not trying to absolve him of any responsibility, but I think in this specific case, Aziz was being abundantly clear about what he was looking for. And I think Grace needs to show a little agency in recognizing that. I could talk about elements of the story endlessly, 
We haven't even touched on consent, and that's a topic I hope to expand upon in a future episode. I was hoping to get into Margaret Atwood and how she's been labeled a bad feminist. But to be perfectly honest, I smoked a few too many cigars and my throat is killing me. Instead, I'd like to lay some foundations of the hashtag MeToo campaign. Tarana Burke launched it in 2007. And according to a Color Lines article written by Samir Rao, the campaign was launched to build solidarity and healing power among black girls and women who survived sexual assault. Now, 11 years later, Tarana Burke is writing a memoir along with Asha Bendel. Tarana Burke told the AP that her book will address her ordinary, extraordinary journey from victim to survivor to thriver. It also covered the foundation of this movement. She continues, the book will also help readers understand the often overlooked historical connections of the role sexual violence plays in communities of color, specifically black communities. Even today, while exploring ways the same communities have been both complicit and resilient, this memoir will provide survivors across the spectrum of sexual abuse a roadmap for healing that helps them understand that the Me Too movement is more about triumph than trauma, and that our wounds, though they may never heal, can also be the key to our survival. According to an article by Emma Brooks writing for The Guardian, Tarana Burke had 500 followers, prior to the hashtag MeToo movement blowing up on Twitter. Apparently, the actor Alyssa Milano co-opted the phrase, not aware of its origins. Following the allegations against Harvey Weinstein, hashtag MeToo was used more than 12 million times. Once Burke became aware of this, she said, social media is not a safe space. I thought this is gonna be a fucking disaster. Tarana was integrated into this new phase of the movement by Michelle Williams, who apparently called her and said, I would love to take you to the Golden Globes. Burke responded with, why? I'm trying very hard not to be the black woman who is trotted out when you all need to validate your work. I gotta say, I think I have a bit of a crush on Tarana Burke. I'm extremely impressed. To give Michelle credit, she then clarified what she was seeking, and Tarana agreed to participate. Later in this Guardian article, Tarana Burke clarifies her stance by saying, sexual violence happens on a spectrum, so accountability has to happen on a spectrum. I don't think every case of sexual harassment has to result in someone being fired. The consequences should vary, but we need a shift in culture so that every single instance of sexual harassment is investigated and dealt with. That's just basic common sense. I couldn't agree with her more. I think that's a wonderful way to view the situation that we're in. After her initial reservations, Burke is embracing what the Me Too movement has become. But she does add, but let's talk about why, and let's talk about what happens after. When the author of this article asks her, will there be collateral damage, and will some men be overly punished for minor transgressions? Tarana responds, I hate that. I don't want that to be true. I'm sure it will be true. Just as there is a small percentage of accusations of sexual assault that are just not true. But I tend to pivot away from that because people tend to blow that up and make it the main thing. What if she's lying? Okay, but it's like a 3% chance. I fully agree with that. And that's something Miranda Sajak mentioned in our interview. The author then poses a final question. What about the temptation to overstate minor transgressions? 
Tarana Burke responds with, there was a murky time, maybe it still exists, when people would say, well, this guy one time touched my boob. I don't know if I can say hashtag me too. And I say to people, I cannot define how you or your body responds to things. I can't tell you that's not trauma. I'm almost speechless. Tarana Burke, you truly impressed me. And I think you're handling the spotlight with more poise than I may have ever seen before. One element I hope to expand upon later is that the Me Too movement was very much founded for black women and women of color. I don't think white women should be excluded, but we have to respect why the movement was founded. We cannot let it be appropriated. I'd like to thank our sponsor, Ogilvy Haggis Bites. We all love them for featuring 20% more small intestines than the competitors, but be prepared to have your kilt blown off. They're now introducing flavor crystals. Try them in all your favorite varieties, barbecue, cheddar, or peaty bog.